You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is Green and Gold History. 50-plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is A's Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. Time for another edition of Green and Gold History, and I'm here with the face of the franchise. Two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, two-time Gold Glover, the great Ray Fossey is with me here. Foss, how we doing? Listen, it's always great to visit with you, to... uh, commend you on a great job that you're doing and i'm looking forward to another another great program and i and I'm, we're going to go over really the the history of baseball here starting from kind of when you really got into it in the 70s i mean the game has changed so much if you think back from the 18 late 1800s early 1900s even through when my grandfather played bob elliott the mvp from 1947 where that was late 30s into the 40s into the 50s where guys were taking trains they had wool uniforms their cups were steel there was far less teams then. Everybody was really either on the East Coast or the Midwest. But we're going to start from your vantage point, from from when you played. And so when you played, we now have teams on the West Coast. As the, the Dodgers and Giants moved West and more teams are coming West. And the American League and National League are growing. And you guys are flying on planes. And, and, and baseball is uh, a lot much better for players at that time. <laughs> well, a lot, a lot better except during the oil embargo which was the early 70s, about the time that uh, it really gave the opportunity for Major League Baseball to say, hey, well, you know, we can't we can't have these charters. We have to fly commercial. So we went from really having it great to flying commercial. And at that time, uh, I remember when I was with the A's in the early 70s, having to stand in line or sit in line at a gas station to get gas. That's how bad it was that time. And we flew commercial to the point that it upset those people who flew all the time in first class because the traveling secretary and the great, like Mickey Morbido, they would have to get all first class seats on that plane for that flight. And then in the back, we got three seats for two people. So we always had the middle seat empty, equivalent to first class. So they would always board us first in these commercial flights. And the business people would walk through and we'd have all the first class and then, you know, several rows back and they'd, they'd be so upset because, you know, these people book flights and they fly first class and now they can't because we had to do that. But, you know, that was a period of time that that was different because let, let's go back to 72 because of, of, you know, fast forwarding to now in the way the game is played. But I remember 1972, I was still with Cleveland and I was I was a perennial loser. We were going to lose. And I'm watching the Oakland A's play the game of baseball. And I remember Carol and I uh, were at our place, uh, a townhouse. We had played a day game in Cleveland. And we go back to the uh, our townhouse, and I'm watching the A's game. And I'm like, look, these guys have mustaches. We could, Nobody had mustaches during that period of time. And Charlie Finley had this thing about grow a mustache, and I'll give you a, a gold mustache comb and $200. And the guy said, hey, that's like, a, that's like a big bonus. Let's do it. So all these guys are growing mustaches. And I'm saying, what's going on? Because, you know, we couldn't do that. But then they get in the World Series, 
And it's the hares versus the squares because the hares, the Oakland A's, and the squares, the Cincinnati Reds, because they had to be clean shaven. They had to have the, the, the stirrup in the back, a little horseshoe, and they have to show a lot of stirrup socks. But the one thing I remember, Tony, is that during that time, there was no interleague play. And the Giants trained in Arizona. I know where Cleveland did, but we had so few teams that trained there. The A's were Mesa. So you might see them a little bit. But Al Hollingsworth, who was a super scout, Al, Al Boots Hollingsworth. There's another Al Hollingsworth who was a baseball player, but this was a scout. He was a scout in 1972 that went out and saw all the teams, but especially the Cincinnati Reds, so that when the A's played the Reds in 72, because of the scout report, they knew everything, every detail about the Cincinnati Reds. Now you think about all the scouting reports and everything that goes on. You know, it's, it's, it's common that you see teams, you have scouts. But in 1972, that kind of started. I know when I was traded in 73 and 74, we would have comparable scouting reports. We knew nothing about the Orioles, or in the case of the Mets, who we played in 73, or the Orioles again in 74 and playing the Dodgers. We had to rely on the scouts. Now, the Orioles I knew. But it was an interesting thing that we didn't have scouting reports for regular season. And, Tony, I'll never forget catching the great late catfish hunter. And he said, when I, I said one time, why didn't you ever shake me off? Why don't you shake me off? And he said, why should I? You know the hitters. You tell me what to throw, and I'll throw it. What a great idea, you know, because it put the emphasis on the catcher. And I always thought as a catcher, that's your job, to know the opposing hitters, to know your pitcher. And the misconception now is that there's so many scouting reports of what this guy can't do, but can your pitcher pitch to that? If he can't hit a changeup, does your pitcher have a changeup? But I always thought that you called a game based on the pitcher's strengths. Now, I kept a book on players. I kept a book on my pitchers who pitched and the hitters who faced. And it got to the point that I knew when Brooks Robinson came up, how to pitch him. I knew when Frank Robinson came up, how to pitch him. Rod Carew, Harmon Killebrew, you know, some great, great Hall of Famers. But it became my job to do that. Now it's given to the players, the catchers especially. They have scouting reports. They have the quarterback on their sleeve where they can look and see, okay, 2-2 count, what should I call? Honestly, I think it's taking away from the job of a catcher because it becomes almost like it's robotic. And so I would prefer... Personally, that and it's old school and nobody likes it, but I think because of everything that's given, you get to the point that you're taking away from what a catcher is supposed to do, and that is to watch the hitter, know his pitcher, and try to pitch a game accordingly. And I think that's one of the things that's lost today, but then it was fun because I knew as a catcher that was my job, and I took it seriously to the point that I knew everybody that came to the plate, and I could tell you exactly how to pitch them. Yeah, every big league team has a video room, and if I want to go down there and I want to see this pitcher, that hitter, I can see every curveball they've thrown. I can watch every at-bat. So so I want to go back to the early 70s. What did a scouting report look like? So when they handed something to Ray Fossey, what did this piece of paper look like, and what did you learn? Fortunately, they didn't hand it to us. They told us. And so we had to remember. They didn't pass it out. I mean, there was nothing written. It was it was really incumbent on you as a player to listen. Because if you have something in front of you and somebody's talking, you're not paying attention. So what the scouts would do, they would stand up in front and they go through the roster and, and get, in my case, of the Mets and then the Dodgers. They would go through those guys and they say, this is what this guy's going to do. This is what this guy's going to do. He's going to run. He's not going to run. This is the pitcher. And really, all we wanted to know was, what did the pitcher throw? Not, 
what percentage of times did he throw a certain pitch? What did he throw? Uh, fortunately, there weren't a lot of split finger fastballs, cut fastballs. That, that's today. But I think the thing that that helped, and you saw a lot, uh, and recently the A's played the Orioles, and uh, uh, there, there are certain pitchers that you can see that they're going to throw fastballs. And this was kind of the way it was in the National League during that period of time. And so they were accustomed to getting fastballs and fastball counts. It's totally different now. You, you get a changeup three and two, you get a splitter three and two, you get a slider three and one, two o changeup, something other than a here's a fastball challenge. Now when I first came up, I'm playing in the National League, I'm playing in the All Star game in 1970, and I'm facing the National League guys. I'm saying they're going to throw me a fastball, and I'm going to look for it to the point that, and I love the story because Johnny Bench is all star. I mean, he's all star catcher, he's a Hall of Famer, and he came up and Sam McDowell was pitcher in 1970, and Sam had a great changeup. He threw it at times to try to fool me, his own catcher. And I said, wait a minute, I'm on your side, you know. But but Bench came up in the All-Star game. And I'm thinking, these guys are fastball hitters. And Sam's got a great changeup. I called a changeup. Swung a miss, strike one. I said, huh, I'll do it again. I called three consecutive changeups. He struck out all three. He swung a miss. He looked at me and said, what are you doing? I said, got you out, didn't I? <laughs> because he was looking fastball. And that's why I say today that there are not that many who will look change up and change up and back to back, much less three in a row. But it, it was a fun time because I knew that if it was a fastball count, I'm getting a fastball. And that's unlike today. But, but I think that that's one of the things about w- when you did your job and you accomplished your job, it was good. Because the old theory about strength up the middle defensively, catcher, pitching staff, second and short, center field. Your offense is on the corners. And that's the way the games play. Because if you play defense and you pitched, you're going to win a lot of games. And that still holds true today, that if you don't, you're not going to win. You're not going to blow guys out. If you don't have good pitching and defense to stop the opposing team, you're not going to win that many games. So that's why it started. When I was traded to, to Oakland in 1973, Dick Williams said we do two things. We pitch and we catch the ball. Now, Tony, remember, there was a guy named Campy leading off, Billy North. And then you had Joe Rudy, Sal Bando. Reggie Jackson, Gene Tennis. I'm going, wait a minute, this is a pretty good offensive ball club. But Dick Williams knew that the importance of winning a game was based on your pitching and your defense. And that's it. And I, I think you there are sometimes that that you see catchers that will rely too much on scouting reports that they just forget about what they're supposed to do. But in that period of time, it was I'm gonna do my job. And when Catfish Hunter, a Hall of Famer, tells me, you tell me what to throw and where to throw it, and I'm gonna do it. Enough said. I think about how archaic baseball was back then from a standpoint of management to where the National League was different from the American League. There was a commissioner overall for the game, but each league was different. They had their own presidents, which is just like you think about it today. It's just not the great way to do business. But I think as a catcher. In the National League versus the American League, the American League got those big chest protectors, and so the guys couldn't see the low strike, so that's why they didn't call the low strike. And then the National League, they didn't wear those, so they saw the low strike. That's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. <laughs> but it was it was part of being – see, we didn't have to worry about it in the American League because I knew the guy was behind me about three feet, and he was a high ball strike umpire. And there's sometimes I say, are you back there? Because he's so far back. Because they had the outside protected that they stuck under their neck 
this big balloon. They held it with inside with a, a strap on the inside. See, people today have no clue about that, but that's the way it was. And the National League, they would wear the inside chest protector, the shin guards, shoulder pads, just like they do now all around baseball. The hard thing for me, Tony, was going into the World Series because remember now, all season we didn't play anybody from the National League, no interleague play. So we get in the World Series, and I'll never forget my first time that I had a catch on my left shoulder, and a runner took off from second to third. I came up to throw, and I hit him. I bumped him, and I stopped because, you know, you, you just instinctively. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry, man. I forgot to tell you I'm on your shoulder. Well, see, that was the difference because in the World Series, they alternated American national. So you'd go inside protector, outside protector, inside protector, outside. And it was confusing, but the biggest thing was that guy on your shoulder – and sometimes they put the hand on the shoulder, get away from me. You know, you're too close. But that's how close they were to the point that it, it changed it. Now, I do remember, too, and I've said it often now as an analyst, that I remember an umpire, and I will not tell who it was, but he told me, Ray, I can't see the outside part of the plate from where I'm set up on your left shoulder. I said, thank you. And it was catfish. And, and this was before they had all this sophisticated grading of umpires. And it was nothing against them because, I mean, look at the look at the uh, Braves and with their great staff that they had. They'd never throw a strike. But with guys like Catfish and Raleigh and Vida and Bloom, all those guys, I'd sit probably four to six inches off the plate. But I would sit there. I wouldn't sit in the middle and then move. I would sit up that way. So I'd give a sign, put my mitt up. So it was as if I'm on the corner. I wasn't. I'm sitting six inches off the plate. Hit the mitt, strike one, strike two. And that was it. It was so beautiful because I'm catching guys that aren't even throwing strikes and they're being called strikes. But because of that umpire back there, he couldn't see across the plate because he would say, well, here's Catfish Hunter. He's a veteran. He knows how to pitch. He's going to throw strikes. Boom, going to call it. But that's why you see at times if there's a rookie hitting, a rookie pitcher, it's going to go to the veteran who's on the other side. And I, and I see that. Umpires don't like me to say it, but bottom line, I think it happens. But I saw it firsthand in the World Series where I was hit off the plate and the point that they'd say, can it get close to where it's just where I can swing at it and hit it? But but that was the reputation. I had I had umpires who would when say Catfish Hunter was pitching. He'd get behind me and he's you know, looking at the first pitches like I'm when I'm warming up and he'd say, This is gonna be a fast game. He'd tell me that. Because he knew catfish through strikes. He knew these guys through strikes. And so, speed it up. You better swing the bat because I'm going to call it a strike if you don't. And they threw strikes so consistently that it wasn't really a problem for them because it wasn't as if they were giving pitches to catfish. It's that he was so consistent, for example, with him. So consistent that they just call it based on that. But it, it's um, the, the umpiring. I, I was ejected by an umpire, uh, the late Ron Luciano. And uh, I was I was in Kansas City, and Lou Pinello was hitting, and the pitcher threw four right down the plate. That's with the A's in 73. Ball one, ball two, ball three, ball four. And I just turned around and said, Ron, what are you doing? He threw me out. And I didn't do anything. He threw me out, and then I went a little bit ballistic. But I said the next day, why'd you throw me out? He says, you jumped too high. But I didn't leave my feet. But that was the reason he gave me for throwing me out. But those those umpires that were back like that, I mean, it was amazing how – Pitchers, and you always taught to pitch low in the strike zone. You couldn't do it with those those umpires who had the balloon and the and, and called the high strike. So you had to vary the way you called the game. And, and I called the game differently, say in the World Series, than I did in in regular season, just because of the difference of the umpires. So as we start to go to the mid seventies and the late seventies, what did you see? Because the game always is evolving. Right. You know, I, I think the biggest thing was the designated hitter because uh, when that came around in 73, 
Uh, it, there were there were rules in, in the World Series, yes, no, because I know Kenny Holtzman was a great hitter. Catfish was a great hitter. When he pitched his perfect game, I think he got three hits and drove in four and pitched a perfect game against the Twins in, in 68. But I think with the DH coming into baseball, it eliminated the pitcher having to hit. So all of a sudden now calling a game, you don't have to worry. Or I, actually, as a catcher, I had to worry that now there are nine hitters. You don't have the pitcher, the luxury of facing the pitcher, let's say, with the eighth-place hitter, pitch around him, pitch the eighth place, uh, the ninth-place uh, hitter or the pitcher. But but I think that probably changed the game as much as anything because remember 1968 when Bob Gibson had a 1-1-2 earn her average and they, they said the mound's too high, let's lower it. And, you know, they wanted more offense because uh, guys were winning batting titles, hitting barely 300 and, and not hitting a lot of home runs. So it was a pitcher's dominated game. So I think during that time when the American League went to the designated hitter, it changed that to where you had guys really, I think, to the point that let's say they couldn't play def- defense, but they could hit. Let them be the DH. And so I, I would see guys say it against the Orioles. Um, Tommy Davis, for example, you know, it was hard for him to play defense, but he could hit and they would let him hit as a DH. But that's how kind of the game evolved during that period of time. And I think during that 70s period of time is when it really took off to the point that you had the DH. And I know when when uh, the late Darren Johnson came over from the Phillies as our designated hitter, he loved it because he got a chance just to hit four times, five times a day, not have to worry about it. All he thought about was his hitting. He didn't go to the cage and take batting practice in between the bats. He stood on the bench or stayed on the bench and, and watched the pitcher. So when he got ready to hit, he went up to hit. But a great designated hitter. But I think that part of the game really helped the American League because when, a, say, a player in the National League, when they and they still don't have it, I think it's coming probably in the next collective bargaining agreement. I think we'll see the DH in the National League. Because I think to some degree, there are a lot of players in the National League, as they get older, they can't play defense, but they can still hit. So what happens? They come to the American League. And I saw that in the 70s quite a bit where these players in the National League would come over to the American League because they could continue their careers and just hit, not have to worry about playing a defensive position. Now you're getting into where I start remembering baseball. And really the, you know, I remember the Dodgers and the Yankees, but really the first World Series and Super Bowl I remember is the Orioles and the Pirates and the Steelers and the Rams. So 19, I was born in 72, so 79 is where you're now getting into my, and as we start to go from the late 70s to the early 80s, now we're seeing baseball and television more than ever before. Well, that's interesting you said that because in 1977, I was fortunate to catch Dennis Eckersley's no-hitter against the Angels, the California Angels. They went from California to Anaheim, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim to Los Angeles Angels, and that's it. But in 1977, here's Dennis Eckersley on Memorial Day pitching against the Angels, and Frank Tanana, we threw 100 miles an hour, no TV, no television. So we're doing the game, and I think it's WKYC was downtown Cleveland. Somebody called him out to the seventh inning and said, hey, Eckersley has a no-hitter. Because all you see now is this shot underneath the overhang of the old municipal stadium, and there's Eck striking out uh, the last two batters. I threw the ball around for the one, and then he strikes out uh, the, the final out for the no-hitter. That is the only footage. That's it. And so, you know, that was in 77. And you go back to 73 in the World Series, I am still criticized, and the late Augie Donatelli is still criticized, for uh, Bud Harrelson scoring at home plate in the eighth or ninth inning of World Series game number two, that because there was only, I think NBC televising, one angle. 
that was from high third looking. They could not see that I tagged Bud Harrelson. But if today they would have had camera angles at every place and they could have seen that uniform just barely move. But I give the late Augie, and I say late, unfortunately, Augie Donatelli passed away. But there is a shot of Willie Mays, the great Hall of Famer, on his knees. He was the on-deck hitter, and he puts his hands up because he's telling Bud Harrelson to slide. And as the throw was coming in from Joe Rudy on what was a sack fly, it was up the line or towards the on-deck circle. And I'm thinking, he's going to slide. I wanted to catch the ball and just dive back in front of the plate. I was giving up my body because that was a run that's going to put them ahead. But as Bud Harrelson came in, he kind of went to the side to try to avoid me. And I just came up, grazed him on the side of the uniform, which is part of the body, as we all know. And Augie Donatelli was in such a great position, he could see that. And I had people write me and say, if you were really a religious person, you would tell the truth and say that you didn't tag him. I said, well, I'm a religious person, and I tagged him. I know I did. But it was so minute. I mean, he didn't feel it, and he went crazy. Uh, Willie Mays was going, oh, and Yogi Berra came out, and he was mic'd. And, and Augie, he said, well, he got him on the blink, blink, you know. <laughs> but I tagged him. But that was because there was only one angle. To your point about the television, it started to evolve. But in today's world, there would have been so many angles, and they would have seen it. And just like in 77, that complete game would have been televised when Eckersley pitched the no-hitter. So there were a lot of things that really happened during the time when you were a child, and I was already playing in Major League Baseball, but you were a mere child learning and seeing all these things happen. But, but during those early years, man, there was nothing. And remember at the time when I'm sure your grandfather played, it was American League, went straight to the National League in the World Series. It's over October the 10th. 12th at the latest because it was American against the national. Now we have wild card, division series, league championship, world series. It's a full month of October. Every game is televised and we know the result of all those televised games. But uh, that's kind of when it evolved just as you, maybe this because you were born there in that period of time. They said, let's bring out the TV for Townie. Yeah, you got to entertain <laughs> these kids. So not only is TV starting on the rise in the early 80s, Nolan Ryan becomes Ooh. the first million dollar player. What was that like for you guys thinking about, wow, a guy's making a million dollars a year? All I know, Tony, when I got to the big leagues, I was making $7,000 for the year. 7000 And in September, when guys would come up, you'd get a pro-rated one month. Now, with a minimum of half a million plus, they're getting probably ninety dollars to $100,000 just for one month of baseball in the month of September. And they could that could settle them for all season, the all off season. They don't have to work. And they make more money in one month than they make the whole summer playing baseball. But when that happened, Nolan gets it, Kirby Puckett, Ricky Henderson, and then it just started, whoever got one, the next one get 1.5, and it just started going and going. I'll be honest with you, when Jose Canseco signed for $25 million for five years, I said, man, that's tops. That will never be eclipsed. And look at us now. Look at baseball now with the money that's being paid. Five million a year is Trump change if you think about that. That's a left-handed reliever. <laughs> but, but, you know, the great Jose Canseco said, don't think I got all that $25 million. I had to pay taxes. Thank you, Jose. That's part of what life is all about. But, um, you know, that was kind of the beginning. But, you know, during that early 70s as well, something that I think is very important, uh, the late Kurt Flood tested the reserve clause. The reserve clause before... Uh, I mean, a lot of changes happen in, with arbitration and with free agency. But at the time, once I signed a contract with the Cleveland Indians, I was part of them forever. I could not do anything. If I said, okay, I'm quitting, they say, fine, you can't play baseball anymore because we own you. And if you're not going to play for us, you can't play for anybody. 
So that was the reserve clause that meant that you sign one and that you're you're owned by that club. And the late Kurt Flum challenged it. I remember he went to Marvin Miller and he said, you know, I think he was traded from St. Louis to Philadelphia and he didn't want to go. And he said uh, to Marvin Miller, he wanted to test the reserve clause. He said, you know, if you do, you never play baseball again. He said, I know that, but I need to do it for the future. But I think the future of baseball right now needs to know what Kurt Flood did. He needs to know that 1972, I was a player representative for the Cleveland Indians, and we were in Dallas, Texas, and I had to put up my hand to, to strike, to vote to strike. I had zero in the bank, not one penny. And my wife, Carol, had to go to work while I tried to stay in shape to get ready, hopefully, for the season begin. So all these things happened in the early 70s. Marvin Miller took over as the head of the Players Association. And we went to, from, I know, 7000 my minimum salary, to what, 550000 now is minimum salary? All these things have happened. And people say, well, it's relative to the time you played. I'm sorry. You know, it, it's not relative. It's part of what has happened in baseball for the players, thanks to the beginning of Marvin Miller, who was hired as, I mean, he was he was basically our boss is, from the player standpoint. And he did a lot um, to change the game and financially for the game because the owners owned the game at the time. It has evolved almost to the point that it's reversed, that it's the players. And I think it's going to equal out again to be more of America's game because it is part of ownership, part of players, to the point that everybody is equal. I mean, this game is so healthy, it's unbelievable. But the early 70s was the beginning of everything that's evolved to the point now. And we're talking about less than 50 years that all this has happened in baseball. Yeah, but the early 80s and the mid-80s was labor strife, constant labor strife. Well, then, and let's go forward to 94 when the, when the entire World Series was canceled in 94. Nobody could believe that. But I think the original question about the million-dollar player, I mean, everybody's thinking, wow, this is great. But Nolan Ryan deserved it. So did Kirby Puckett. So did Ricky Henderson. They deserved to be paid the highest because they were the Mike Trouts then. I mean, Mike Trout deserves everything he gets because – to me, I think he's the face of baseball in today's world. But those guys in, in the in the 70s and the 80s started making that kind of money. You could see how the game was changing to where the players were being compensated. Because, you know, unfortunately, we have to go back to the 1919 Black Sox scandal. And, and the reason that they did what they did, who knows. Uh, but that was part of, uh, it was sad that it happened. But I think what happened then happens or it doesn't happen now. But it helps baseball now to remember what happened in 1919 that god willing it would never happen again because what happened then changed the game but i think once players started to be compensated for their value as a player and playing major league baseball i think at that point they said hey this is a great game for all of us ownership players and i think it's it's a very healthy game I want to save the late 80s for part two because the A's were such a big part of that, and we're going to have to do a lot on that. But also what I think about early 80s, mid 80s, speed was really playing in the game. You look at Ricky Henderson. I mean, he came up in the early 80s, and what he did, 1982, he had 50 stolen bases by, what, June 1st? I mean, you guys don't go 50 of the whole team in today's world. So, yeah, there's the speed. But but you, you think of the artificial surfaces, uh, the late Tony Gwynn probably had a chance to hit 400. The A's Matt Williams coaching third had a chance maybe to hit 60 home runs during the 1994 when it went on strike and it ended. But that period of time you're talking about, you know, as a catcher, 
I took pride in the World Series in the 70s, and the great Monty Moore, uh, he always brings it up. He says, you know, if it weren't for Ray Fossey throwing out base runners. But you know what? They had Tommy Harper with the, with the uh, Baltimore Orioles, and I knew they were going to run. It was a running game. It was not sitting around for the home run, or even though Earl Weaver liked the three-run home run who managed those teams. But he also knew that even though he had the power – that he had to try to manufacture runs. And the way to do that was with Paul Blair or Tommy Harper, these guys who could run. Uh, and I, I loved throwing them out. It was such a thrill to be a part of the postseason and to throw out base runners. Because, Tony, I went from catching and hitting fourth in Cleveland to being traded to the Oakland A's catching and hitting eighth. Dick Green and I were at the bottom of the order. And I, was, I couldn't be happier because I was winning, contributing to a ball club. And by throwing out base runners, because it was – you said it perfectly. It was a period of time where teams had base stealers. They had the rabbits. You look at the Coleman with the Cardinals. They had uh, Tim Raines and, and, and Ricky, of course. They had guys who could run. And it was fun throwing them out just because it, it was it was incumbent on you because you'd look at them and you know they're going to run. And we called our own thing. We called pitch outs. We called throw overs. I remember a great Kenny Holtzman. Holtzman pitched for us in the 70s in, in the World Series. And – I would turn my thumb, I'd just throw over, and he goes, nah, that takes too much time. <laughs> I mean, the timing of games, the number, of, the, the length of games now, that's a whole other story. But but here's Kenny Holtzman. He said, he just go, nah, let's go. I didn't take too much. He's doing that on the mound, you know, and, and just saying, I don't want to throw it off first, but he could pick guys off left and right. But, I mean, the game, and granted, TV commercials and a lot of things that are happening now, but it was fun to boom, boom, let's go. I mean, uh Randy Jones, I heard, pitch for the Padres, and they would start the game at 7.30, and he, they'd be finished before it got dark. That's how quickly <laughs> he pitched. You know, cause, So you can imagine, get the ball throw, put the ball in play, let's go, your defense. But everybody stayed alert. But, you know, it was a different game, but I think one of the biggest things that we'll talk about in the future is that there's so much information today compared to the way it was. These players are talented today, a lot more talented players in the past with regard to their abilities, but I think given the opportunity to work out year-round, I would still take the opportunities that we had with the players that I played against and or with and know that it was done the right way, it was game was played the right way, and it was played the best, and it was a tremendous era. I think of Ricky, I think of Vince Coleman, I think of Tim Raines. We'll talk about this later. There's no chance they would allow them to run that much today. They would be they would be like, whoa, 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 you do not have a green light every game. All right, so we've gone through the 70s, a little bit of the 60s, into the 70s, into the mid-80s. Part two, we're now going to get into the late 80s where the A's start to dominate again and become one of the best baseball teams. And uh, we're going to go over the evolution of baseball. We're going to go from what it was like when Ray played to Ray started broadcasting now. Ray's about to get into broadcasting. And then, of course, to where we are today with all the analytics. We'll have to go through Moneyball, but now all the science. I hope you enjoy it. Part one of the evolution of baseball with the great Ray Fossey right here on Green and Gold History. You're listening to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story and one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.